You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. This episode is supported by the African American Leadership Forum. Up next, we have Marcus Flynn, Executive Director of Black Men Teach. Enjoy the show. Marcus Flynn, thank you for joining me on Conversations with Shonda. I am very much looking forward to having this conversation with you. Yeah, I appreciate the invite a ton. So I'm excited for the combo. I have a lot of feelings about education. And so they're likely going to come out in this conversation I have with you. But before we jump in, I would love it if you would just share with the listening audience who you are and what you do. So the the simple version is I'm a former teacher. I'm the executive director of Black Men Teach. And I work to help get more Black men into elementary school classrooms. I think the the more true answer is I, I'm somebody who's real passion oriented and purpose aligned. And I think right now in this current phase of life, I operate behind this guiding belief that of all of the quality of life indicators, education is the one that's the most foundational, the one where if you invest, you see the most residual benefit. And I have a belief that teachers are the most important person in a child's education experience. And so the work that I do all aligns with that is the reason I became a classroom teacher. It's the reason I love to be at the executive director of Black Men Teach. As I was preparing to have this conversation with you, I was reflecting back, of course, on my own education. And I think I had two Black male teachers from kindergarten through my master's degree. That sounds about right. Um, we have to talk about the numbers. So we know in Minnesota, there's about 60,000 teachers leading classrooms, about 875 are black. So that's less than one and a half percent. They don't do a great job of specifically talking about race and gender groups, right? They don't stratify by that. But we do know across the state about one out of every four teachers is male. You take that same proportion and apply it to the number of black teachers, it leaves you with roughly 220 black male teachers, K-12. Out of that whole number, that's less than half of 1%. And so many people who go to school in Minnesota will never see a black man. And for me, fortunately, home is uh, Chicago. I grew up just outside of the city. And my first black teacher was third grade. First black male was a little bit later in seventh grade. Had black men in high school. Had black men through college. And so fortunately, I've had an opportunity to see myself reflected, probably not as much as I should have, given the diversity of the student body. But I, I know that that experience is valuable. And I know it's also not uncommon for people not to experience it. Even many of the men in our program who are trying to become teachers themselves either never had a Black teacher, never had a Black male teacher, or didn't have their first Black male or Black teacher till college. And so that's what we're looking at change. That's a, that's a big part of my personal mission. Yeah, I did have um, very strong Black female teachers um, growing up here. Uh, Mrs. Toy, who I always like to, to call out and shout out. She was my second grade teacher and I was just a little reader. And so she used to bring me books and I still have most of the books that she gave me when I was in second grade because it meant a lot. And when I reflect on who nurtured me, she's definitely at the top of the list where I felt like she concentrated on where I was strong and not necessarily the, the the subjects that I wasn't strong in. 
And then I had three Black biology teachers when I was in high school, Miss Helka, Miss Scott, and Miss Cotman at North High School. And I don't remember a lot of the teachers' names, but I remember them. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same. My yeah. first Black teacher was third grade. It was Miss Burns. And she's just one of those people you never forget. I remember even she had like a little, like a, almost like a birthmark on her lip. I just remember her that clearly, but I don't, can't even tell you who taught my, me in second grade. Mm-hmm. But like my third grade teacher, I can remember physical features about her. It's this black woman who just felt motherly. She just like encouraged, inspired, looked after us. I mean, it's, and so it, it's a testament, right? Like when I was a teacher, I thought about this often. You know, a lot of people can remember those early experiences with black teachers. And often it's just like what I just described. It, I didn't say like, you know, Ms. Burns had thought great. Third grade was teaching us cursive and, and these things. I just remember the way she made me feel. Mm-hmm. And that's something that me is to me is so important because it transcends the test of time. I talk to people who are much older than myself who maybe can be seven years old. And I'll ask them about their experience with teachers and often the name of those early people because how they made them feel. And so that is, that's the that's the power. I mean, everybody, the reason I appreciate some of the work that we do, everybody has a connection to teachers. Everybody intimately understands the benefit of having good teachers and the, and the downside of having bad ones. And uh, that experience that you named that we share, I mean, it's, it's, it's so valuable. It stays with you your entire life. It does. How do you define a bad teacher? Do you have a definition of a bad teacher? Because sometimes we we say good and bad and it feels very subjective. Um, sometimes we define it by um, academic outcomes. But how, how would you define like a bad teacher? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, bad teacher is definitely subjective. It's like no individual, no adult is the same to any children. So like I think about even like a parent, right? A parent isn't the same to each child. And so it's incredibly subjective. When I think about what a bad teacher is at the core, somebody who doesn't really care about children, um, somebody who's there to reinforce systems and is not thinking about the individual, that to me is the sign of a bad teacher. You can have poor outcomes on tests and still be a strong teacher. Because again, I think there's things that are so important that come from school that are harder to capture quantitatively. Like, are you helping somebody develop a love for learning? If you do that, you're helping set their trajectory and the way they're going to experience school the rest of their career. That's a lot more influential than if they're proficient or not in this very moment. That, that's cross-sectional. That, that love for learning, that's a longitudinal thing to look at. And so if you're all about reinforcing systems, you're over-penalizing students, you don't actually care about them as individuals. Yeah, nah, that's a bad teacher to me categorically. Mm-hmm. Other things outside of that, I think is it, is up in the air for people to de- determine. But if you have those things, nah, it's not yeah. good. I remember when my son, Jalen, who uh, is in college now, but he came home when he was maybe nine and he said, mom, we have to study more. And I said, why? He said, because I'm not proficient in all the areas and I don't want to be a failure. And it just, it, it's always stuck with me because I think in education, we often use language like proficiencies and reading scores and math scores and 
all of these indicators that we should be measuring, but we actually describe it. It ends up being a descriptor of a community of people or a group of kids, right? Like we start using that um, internal organizational evaluation language and then we move it to kids as though they understand it. And I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to undo that damage? How, how am I going to undo the damage of what that just communicated to him? Um, do you think that we have the right language in schools to support students? I don't think a nine-year-old should be worried about if they're proficient or not, right? That's, that's so tough because they don't even understand the process of what it takes to get there, right? What they should be focused on, especially for young kids, it's all about daily development. And the most important metric, and I think most teachers understand this intuitively, but the most important metric, even when you're doing uh, quantitative assessments, is growth. Like, not, not how do you compare to the mean across the state or across the nation? How are you better now are you performing better now than you performed three months ago six months ago a year ago that by far is the most important metric proficiency is it's good to know but it's more of a district level statistic it's like proficiency is 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 good for thinking about not an individual but a school system or maybe an individual school but definitely not at an individual level and definitely not at a nine-year-old level Right. No nine year old should be talking about like, yeah, I'm not proficient and I'm going to fail across. No, that's that's not how you think about it. It's do you feel like you're getting better? Right. And and guiding them through those type of conversations. So I, I don't know. If I, I feel like schools are pretty good with language for the most part, like I, I don't, I've never heard any of the men in our program or even my colleagues when I was in the classroom having conversations around test outcomes that felt inappropriate for the level of student they were talking to. So my, my guess is generally schools do a good job of that. I think at the individual levels, we start to see those challenges, like, yeah. which is some experience. So you grew up in Chicago. Were your parents educated or what was your, your route to becoming a teacher? Yeah, so both of my parents are social workers. Uh, so maybe that had an impact on me going into a social sector, but I don't know. I went to college and I remember the one thing my mom told me, she was like, you do whatever you want. You cannot be a social worker. And that was the guy that she gave me and just kind of set me off. Um, and so my, my journey to education was definitely not linear. Uh, I went to school, started off on a pharmacy track thinking like, maybe that's for me. Switched over to more of a physical therapy focus switched over to more of a public health focus. And then ended up going to grad school, trying to become an epidemiologist. Because I thought at the time, that was the most influential way. Well, one, I thought health was the most foundational thing you had in your life. And I wanted to focus on the health of Black people specifically. And I thought outside of directly practicing medicine, the most influential thing you can do is produce large-scale longitudinal studies because that would potentially inform policy. And so that's what that's the route I was pursuing. And I remember I had this mentor, he's my fraternity brother, uh member Alpha Phi Alpha. He told me, he said, if you want to find your purpose, you have to intersect your past and your talent. 
And so I remember thinking about that when I was in grad school and I was like, you know, I thought this is what I thought in my mind. I was going to finish my master's. I'm going to go to Emory or Georgia State so I could be proximate to the CDC. I could be in Atlanta, I could be an epidemiologist, and I could focus on black folk. And then so I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to position myself to do all of that. But I started this reflection process thinking, all right, I know my passions around community uplift, youth development, all of these things. My talent is a little bit harder to find, right? It was not in statistical analysis. I knew that immediately. And that was such a strength of what I was doing currently. So I figured, you know, this probably isn't the direction for me. And so I just started thinking what it was. And I think fortunately, the, the studies I was doing at the time kind of started pushing me in this direction. Because simply put, I realized when you're looking at these longitudinal observational studies and you're applying interventions, if you're doing a health study, but you don't consider education as a confounding variable, mm -hmm. sometimes the relationship the intervention has with the outcome looks different. And so what I saw from that was like, you know, education might be even more foundational in someone's life than health. Right? I came to the conclusion that way. And so I started looking at education studies. And that's where I saw some of the same things that we talk about in our organization today. So one study, John Hopkins University, said if you have one Black teacher by third grade and you're a Black student, you're 13% more likely to enroll in college. You had a second one, that same period, right? Kindergarten to third grade. A second Black teacher is 32% more likely to enroll in college. I'm like, those are some numbers. I had to think, I'm like, does college come after kindergarten for some folks? Like, how is it how how is it possible that that impact stays with them for that long? Saw another study said from third grade to fifth grade, right? Upper elementary. This study looked at uh, black students, but specifically they looked at low-income black boys. So black boys who are on free reduced lunch kindergarten through eighth grade by a lot of metrics. This is one of the more difficult groups to reach. They said if those students had one black teacher between third and fifth grade, that 39% looks like they drop out of high school. Yeah. When I saw that, I'm like, this is this is life-changing stuff. And I'm going back through both studies and I'm looking and didn't say anything about, okay, these teachers went to this prestigious university. These teachers had this training or this professional development. It was these teachers and their immutable qualities of their blackness had that long-term benefit to those students. And I'm like, that's the type of impact I want to have. That to me is life-changing stuff. And so I decided, I'm like, I'm going to go teach. And so that, that's how I came to it. Was that far enough away from social work for your mother to be okay with it? <laughs> you know, I told my mom, and the first thing she told me, she was like, I was like, mom, I'm going to teach. She's like, okay, okay. Your uncle's a pharmaceutical sales rep. You get a nice little company car. She's like, I want you to do that instead. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm trying to do something to, to manifest my purpose. And without a doubt, it's the best decision I ever made. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember I have I have an aunt that's a social worker, my aunt Gladys. And I remember from very young, I knew I would be in the social sector. And I have a very similar story where my family's like, don't do it. That's not where the money is. They will work you to death. Like, I mean, it was just all these things. And um, some of it is true, but I mean, you have to set your own boundaries, but it's been so life-giving um, for me and clearly aligned with what, what I'm intended to do. 
Um, let's talk about the benefit of Black teachers for students that are not Black. Yeah, because often we talk about it in, in the terms of, you know, Black students. And, and, you know, earlier in the conversation, you talked about Minnesota being a largely white state and many people never having a Black teacher. So what, what are the benefits of just having a Black teacher, regardless of what your demographic is? Yeah, so there, there's data and there's numbers that talk about teachers of color have benefits on all students, including white students. And uh, for me, I saw it. Um, I think one thing, I think society does a, a like Black men a disservice as a whole. I think there's a narrative that's created Societally, about black men that paints us in a certain way, and it's generally not positive. Then I think there's this archetype for what it means to be a teacher that is very different, right? There's qualities like nurturing, leader. People think of teachers and they think about like community members and altruistic, benevolent, all of these things associated with teaching. And many of those things are things that are associated with black men. So I think when black men take on the role of teacher, for a lot of their students, I think they're starting to undermine some of this unconscious bias that they built, right, as a function of just being alive in society, right? And so I think that that's one thing that anecdotally I just know happens. I think, though, like all students benefit from diverse perspectives. And so when Black men teach, especially Black men who come through our program, they teach very authentically. And so you get a different experience in a classroom when black men are leading a class. Like you walk into some of our teachers' classroom and you hear music, right? Like R&B music. It feels different. Like genuinely, it feels different than being in a classroom of non-black teachers. The way that the class is set up, you look at like one of our teachers, you walk in this classroom, you see posters of Nipsey Hussle and Prince, uh, Michelle Obama, and all of these people. Like for a lot of students, it's the first time they're in an environment that's led, especially white students, it's the first time they're in an environment that's led exclusively by a black person or a black man. And so they get an opportunity to build a connection with a black man they maybe never had before. And I think a lot of times that difference allows them a window into an experience that they've never seen outside of what they've seen through the media. And so our men do a lot. We recently went to a uh, one of our partner schools to have a staff meeting. So we took our entire team. After our staff meeting, we just did rounds. There's four black male teachers placed at this school. And we just split up and visited each of their classrooms. And we came back and we reflected on it. And in the reflections, one of our uh, people on our team, she was like, it was so good to see a black man teaching math and then looking into his classroom and seeing young white girls being locked in and engaged. And so there's, there's, there's so much benefit for everyone. I know the data I talked about earlier talked about Black students specifically, but it's for everyone. Black men bring a lot to the classroom. I was around a bit when um, the evolution of, of Black men teach, right? The idea was sort of a seed. Um, it was being built, built up. Can you just share a little bit more on what is the organization and how did it originate? How old is it? I think it's around four years old, but how old is it? Yeah, Black Men Teach, we crossed the five-year threshold going on six, 2018, which is crazy. And really was founded by the board we have now, or many of the board members we have now, um, still in place. And it just really came up because they identified a need 
in the community. And through a series of conversations, realized that one of the ways that we can solve for the challenges our community faces by having this laser-focused approach, not on teachers of color as a whole, but just on one specific race and gender group at a time and thinking about how do we provide a set of supports for the folk in that group to move them, support them through the process of becoming a licensed classroom teacher. And you identified a need. What what you just said, though, brought up another question, which is when you look at the numbers that you shared with us around the numbers of black teachers or black male teachers, you know, we often, you know, can hear or talk about or or some of us are very familiar with being the first, the only or the few in the building. And so can you talk about the the support system that's created? And is that. Is that um, allowing people to then get their license and stay in teaching? Because it's one thing to become a teacher. It's something different to stay in the in the profession. So when we place men in schools, our goal is to have our partner schools at 20% of their teaching staff being Black men. So for a lot of elementary schools, that's somewhere in the ballpark of like four to six. And so the goal is to make sure that none of our men are the only, or if they are the only, it's not for long. We want to make sure that that collegial support is embedded within the school. And so that's a core part of our model, making sure that that support is there. But thinking about the way that we build it from start to finish, we actually start at the high school side. So we have a couple of high school fellowship partners right now between those schools. So it's Patrick Henry um, and St. Louis Park High School right now where we work with. And the between the two schools, we have 35 men that we're supporting. The support is basically two things. We recruit you into an education pathway program. So folks might not be familiar. There's career pathways where you're taking classes in your high school and you're getting college credit conferred for taking that course. So our guys are getting a couple college credits for taking this introductory education course. And we're working with them during the school day to help reinforce the why behind Black men's decision to go into the classroom. Second thing we do is we run an internship. And so what we'll do is we'll have an internship that takes place in the spring semester. We'll bust in about 60, 70 black and brown second through fifth grade elementary school boys to the high school. And we'll have our high school students co-facilitate a social emotional learning lesson um, to those kids. And so they're in the high school for four hours and the high school guys are facilitating that entire time. Serving them breakfast teaching a lesson, taking them to the gym, leading through dismissal. So that's the high school piece. College is more just general wraparound support. So right now we have about 26 guys in college. Our men get up to $20,000 in scholarships over the course of their college career. So all of our men have access to a mentor who's a current classroom teacher. We do monthly retreats, workshops, or excursions. We have internships where instead of waiting like a typical student teaching experience, it's like your last semester, your last experience while you're in college. It makes no sense. That's the first time that you're in the building with kids. So we try to push our men into the classroom as soon as they walk on that college campus and we put them in an internship where they're getting paid to be in the school, get a chance to explore, see what it's like to learn hands on and apply what they're learning um, in person what they learn in the classroom. And then we offer supports like uh, health and wellness. 
So all of our men have an opportunity to sign up for mental health counseling if they're interested. It's anonymous. So we don't even know who does it. We just pay the bill on their behalf. Offer emergency funds too. So if anything comes up that might derail them, try to take that away. That's college. And then the classroom piece starts with us identifying partner schools. We have a process that we built to help us identify, are there schools that have a strong infrastructure and a culture that's conducive to retaining Black men? We partner with those schools, and then we try to get those schools to that 20% threshold. Work with those schools on their induction processes, but then we also provide our men with retention incentives. So if you visit our website, you can see some of the videos we have. But one thing we've done is we've made student loan debt commitments to each of our men. And so we have some men receiving up to $50,000 over the course of five years to pay away from their student loan debt. We also do professional development with them, always something in the summertime. We have some things during the school year. And we have an instructional coach who's in the building at minimum twice a month. If you're struggling, might be twice an hour. Like as much as we need to make sure that you have the support that you need. And we provide, uh, we have a new partnership with Twin Cities Habitat for Humanity. where We're doing $30,000 in down payment assistance to help our men purchase homes at first time home buyers. And so that's another commitment where they'll do an additional five years so that it's fully forgivable, interest free. And as they teach, part of that loan is being paid off based on them just staying in the classroom. That's what the work looks like now. But we're at an inflection point. So we're looking to, we're in the process of building a coalition. So we're using a method called collective impact, which is a nonprofit's approach to systems change. And so what we're doing is bringing together strategy, I'm sorry, uh, bringing together stakeholders to strategize on like, here's the data, here's survey results from our black men. We know what the issues are. We know what's keeping black men from going into the classroom or staying in the classroom. So from there, we started to build out a set of strategies for us to execute so that we can start to move the needle and take the responsibility away from black men teach solely being the organization that's pushing for more black men elementary school teachers and say, since this is a community-wide problem, we have to have a community-wide solution. Bringing in other organizations whose work also touches some of the things that we do and collectively moving towards this common goal of increasing the number of black male elementary school teachers. So our coalition is actually set to launch early April. We're in the process right now of defining our steering committee, which is the governing body and then the work groups where the work will actually manifest from. But the scope of the work is different than the scope of work we're doing right now. The coalition came together and decided that the new goal should be support every elementary school in the state of Minnesota that has 40% or more black students. There's 96 elementary schools that meet that criteria. And with those 96 schools, let's try to get their teaching staff up to 20% black men. So currently at those 96 schools, there's about 2,200 teaching staff. How many? 2,200. Okay. There's only, there's under 50 black men teaching in those schools right now. So to go from less than 50 to 20%, got to bring in roughly another 400 black male teachers. And so over the course of the next 10 years, that's what the work is looking to do. We're looking to move from the program that we're operating in isolation to backboning um, 
this coalition that has this much larger goal in order to move the, uh, the needle on the system's level. When that work is successful, roughly half of all Black elementary school teachers in the state of Minnesota will have access to a Black male teacher. So nobody will say what <laughs> both of us said, right? Neither one of us had a Black male in elementary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People I'm always say. struck by, you know, 2020 here in Minnesota, and, and we are you are we are unique in, in some ways because of the response to, to George Floyd's murder, but we're not unique in terms of what happened. But here I was struck at the time with the number of organizations and people that were sort of shocked by what happened and really trying to understand race relations and trying to reach out and diversify their friends. And when I think about education, I'm like, wouldn't it be great if we were raising kids that had more exposure to people that aren't like them? So that they're learning these things from a younger age so that we can have different outcomes for ourselves, for our community, for our neighbors, um, for our states. Um, and so this feels like a good, solid strategy. And it makes sense to go to. So there's 96 schools in our state. Yep. That's more than I thought it would have been, actually. Yeah, mostly concentrated in the Twin Cities, but the majority of my charter schools. Mm. And so the work will be as far north as St. Cloud, I think as far south as Rochester, but primarily here in the Twin Cities um, and mostly at Charters. That's where our kids are. A lot of our listeners are um, also outside of the state. Are you familiar with programs like this that might exist in other states? So I think the organization that's the largest at doing work comparable to ours is the Center for Black Educated Development. They're based in Philadelphia. They had they just had a satellite site created in, I think, Memphis. They do work on building the National Black Teacher Pipeline. In New York, there's an organization that's not focused specifically on Black men. It's called NYC Men Teach. Often we get confused for them. Um, but they do work in New York to help diversify the teaching core. In D.C., there's an organization called Real Men Teach that's doing work. Get more Black and brown men into the classroom. There's an organization in Tennessee called Man Up. I think Man Up Teach. And they do, again, work to get more black and brown men. Down in New Orleans, there's Brothers Empowered to Teach, getting more black men into classrooms. West Coast, there's uh, Watts of Power Foundation. They have an organization, or they have an initiative called Teacher Village, more black men in elementary school to teach, and they have a housing component as well. There's another organization that's in Los Angeles in Northern California. I'm blanking on, but it's led by Randy Saraguchi. They're getting more black and brown men to teach. Another California-based organization in the Bay, Black Teacher Project. Can't forget my guys, Profound Gentlemen, headquartered in Charlotte, got sites in Chicago, and also in Atlanta, I believe. They do work with college students. At the college level, there's also the OG organization. They've been around since 2000. Call me Mr. Based in Clemson, founded by Dr. Roy Jones. In Texas, there's an organization called Summerhouse. They do work with college men trying to help them become teachers as well. Can't forget my organization in Boston. Uh, two of them, my guys, Robert Hendricks, he leads. He is me. We use their curriculums called I Am King. They do work with college men, college black men getting them to teach. Then there's the Teacher's Lounge. They focus on teachers of color in Boston. There's some more I can name too. 
Man, I'm impressed that you were able to name it. You're like, I, I couldn't remember. I wouldn't remember half of that. So do you guys get together on an annual basis or how do you guys share between this network for those that might be be interested in doing this? Because, you know, from my point of view, this should be happening across every state. So do you guys get together? Do you guys have conferences or what does that look like? You know, every every now and then there's initiatives to get folks together who specifically do this work. Um, the Center for Black Educative Development, who I named first, they have an annual conference called the Black Male Educator Convening, and they they do a really good job of bringing together organizations like ours and then also hundreds of Black educators and administrators. So I think that offers a space for us to come together. But there's been a few efforts that explicitly focus on us. None of them have had a lot of longevity. Mm-hmm. And of course, each organization I named, there's minor differences. Some men of color, some black men, some elementary, some K-12, like all, all different types of work. But I mean, it's hard just because folk are so focused. Like the need is so tremendous in your community that it's easy to be head down and not focus up on the national side. And that happens to me. There's calls that happen. I'll hop on one and then I miss the next three. Yeah, I get that. I would think that based on the numbers, the potential, based on the studies that you shared, that people would be embracing this effort. Do you feel an embracing of what you're doing or their pushback to what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, At least on a local level, we've had a lot of people embrace us. I think a lot of people just understand the need. And if they don't, it's not hard to get them there quickly. People have been talking about, and there's so many studies on the benefits of teacher of color now that it's like kind of like debating gravity. Right? People know that there's a need. People know there's benefit. And the, the numbers are just so easy. It's so easy. Like there's 96% of the workforce, the teacher workforce in Minnesota is white. 34% of the students are students of color. It's obvious that that's a, a mismatch. The data is obvious that there's benefit when you get to see yourself reflected in your classroom. And even the anecdote is obvious. And so we don't, we don't get a lot of pushback, mostly embraced. I wouldn't imagine you would get pushback either. But what I, you know, one of the things I guess I'm thinking about is LIFO and the unions. And I know your work doesn't all exist within unionized schools because um, you mentioned charter schools. But when you think about more teachers in, you're not talking about exiting people that want to be teachers, right? We're talking about adding to the pipeline. And I know there's a huge retirement number, but just to like lay the context, you're not talking about replacing or supplanting teachers or are you like, what are we talking about in terms of the numbers? Cause I think there's a teacher shortage, but I don't know this work as well as you do. Yeah, no, there, there's definitely a shortage. And it's obvious too. You look at the numbers, um, so Pelsby is a professional educator license and a standards board. That's like the main home of things related to teacher uh, retention recruitment. If you wanted to see the data, they put out an annual or biennial supply and demand report. And if you look at it, it's intuitive. You'll see over the last five incoming teacher cohorts, the number of incoming teachers is diminished. And that's reflected with the same national data. You see teacher prep programs are just reducing the supply of teachers. But then if you look at the retention rate in that same graph, you'll see the retention rate has remained consistent. And so you have this consistent attrition where after five years, you're losing roughly a third of the incoming class. And the incoming class every year is getting smaller. And so the shortage has put us in a position where we need more initiatives to support and supply quality educators to our kids because 
education is one of those professions. The community can't function without teachers at all. If, if we get to a point where teachers are that inundated and overwhelmed, it's not going to be good for anybody. Mm-hmm. And so fortunately, I think we haven't even experienced much pushback from like the state or local union because everybody recognizes like we need more teachers. And if we're a vehicle to help support that, I think yeah. it's, it's worked well. For all of the schools that, that you have um, teachers in, I think you've painted a, a great picture of how you're supporting um, those black men in the schools and the numbers that you're trying to drive to. My question, I guess, is how is having him in the building actually supporting other teachers? Like, are they are they seeing a across the school benefit or is it really just in the classrooms where they're placed? When I when I talk to our school principals, they'll tell you a lot about what it means to, to build on culture. And the guys themselves, like the schools where we have the most teachers, they're super collegial. And many of them are on the same grade team. And so they're changing. And some of them are in grade team leadership, too. So they're really changing the, the culture of the school. I talk about data a lot just because, I mean, I, I always appreciate numbers. But I know there's also a group of people who listen who primarily appreciate numbers. And so there's a study that came out. I think it was published in 2023. And it looked at the benefit of having a Black teacher being proximate to a Black teacher to novice white teachers. What they saw was if you had a teacher with under three years of experience that was white, who's on the same grade team as a black male teacher, their black students perform better in reading, math, and in their discipline data. And so what that study shows us and what I've seen in the classrooms as well is like the benefit of having black men is real because they give you insight into the experience of students. They give you insight into their philosophy and approach to connecting with kids. And even the way that they think about education. And so the benefit is is not limited specifically to their classroom. It's the whole school, especially when those schools start to get to that 20 percent threshold that we're talking about. You um, talked about supporting your your men that are in the program with scholarship and wraparound services, home buying and and other um, elements. What is your funding model that allows you all to be able to do that? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's a little bit of everything. You got to be a paper chaser. Um, yeah. So fortunately, we've had a lot of support from the state, and that's been good for us. The past two funding sessions, we've received support from the state. We've had some large corporate gifts historically. General Mills has been the biggest to date. We had, they had a $500,000 commitment to us over the course of four years. That four years ending, this will be the last installation of that gift this year. Foundation have been the biggest supporter for us in our lifespan so far. Um, we've had some large gifts from individual foundations. I think our largest it was another $500,000 gift. Individuals have been good to us. We're trying to grow that individual donor base. But we've had some major gifts that have come in that have, again, surpassed six figures. It's been everywhere. Um, and I think it'll continue to be that. I, I keep talking about data. So. Nationally, what you see is, and I think we're very cognizant of this, you look at Black-led organizations, and then you look at large white-led organizations, the pie of their funding chart looks so different. And ours is in the conversation in the same category as Black-led organizations. You'll see nationally about 70% of the funding Black-led organizations receive from foundations. On the large white-led organization side, it's much different. It's like individuals have become the biggest piece. And so that's where we're looking to grow primarily because foundations 
from what I've heard, don't stick with you for a long time always. And it's not, it's something you can depend on early, but not for a long, uh, for the longevity of an organization. And right now we're depending on foundation. So we're trying to grow, trying to be strategic. I have two development officers on our team. One focuses on individuals. The other one focuses on more institutional gifts, things you can write a grant for, basically. But our organization has very lofty goals and ambitions. And I think the only way that we're able to reach that is if we start having a more diverse portfolio of funders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've been in the foundation world, so you're not wrong about the longevity piece. Foundations are, are similar and they're also different. Some like to seed an idea, some like to sustain an idea. Some have, you know, two years and then you can reply, you know, reapply your fourth year, one year off. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of rules. But in general, are you starting the year at like a zero based funding or do you have I mean, I heard you say some multi-year gra- um, grants, but so you're just out here hitting the pavement hard <laughs> throughout the year. Yeah, we not starting at zero every year. Fortunately, we've d- done well enough every year that we were able to build a reserve because you just never know what's going to happen. You just got to have that rainy day fund. And so right now we have a pretty robust investment portfolio. We've been investing in U.S. Treasury bills to help provide uh, some investment income. But every year, you hit yeah. the road. I mean, we're young, don't have a long history. And I think there's a, a relationship between, and this is me guessing, between the size of gifts and the amount of times that you've been in existence. I think a lot of people are reticent to give large gifts to young organizations because they believe that there's a chance that they might collapse and fall apart. And then where's the money go? Right? You're not getting it back. And so I think people are more willing to give large gifts to big institutions, even if they're not really doing much. But the one thing they can guarantee is that money going to get spent eventually. And so we're in this position right now where we, we are just being scrappy. We've got to prove that we have the same power for some people to feel comfortable giving us a large gift. And I think we're in a good position. Like we're very transparent in our financials. You can go on our website right now. You can see our 990. Um, you can see how much I get paid, right? Like all of that is public information, very transparent. But yeah, it's just, I think it's just the way. And yeah. we're, we're in such an interesting community because, you know, Minnesota is so philanthropic, but it's also reticent to help those like smaller organizations get to a place where they can be sustained over time. What I've learned, what I think I've learned, what I think I've learned is that, you know, a lot of folks that are individual givers um, will often give to places that they're just familiar with. Like, I don't know if it's as much about the size for some people, perhaps it is, but I think about where I give might be where my mom gave because it was important to her. And so there's a network of places or I'll give something cause my friend sits there, right? Like, you know, they invite you to something, you give money. And so a lot of it is how you elevate and amplify. It's really, it's really interesting. Cause if I talk to older, you know, the older organizations, they'll say funders want to fund things that are new and shiny and bright. They don't want to fund the old organization. So it's really interesting to hear and at, you know, when I ask that question from different points of view, everyone else thinks the other one has it a little bit better. But you brought out the data. So the data is the proof is in the pudding, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just can't see it. I, I can't see. I, I can see a reality where some people are like, there's new things that come up and people are their attention is drawn to it. I just watch when these large gifts are dropped. And yeah. I don't see them being dropped on organizations that aren't a stat, like well-established and have like years, decades behind them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, like, OK, yeah, maybe some of these new grants are popping up and they're focused specifically on young organizations and they're twenty five thousand. 
Yeah, thank yeah. you. Right? Yeah. Like that's life changing. But when I see five, ten, fifteen plus million dollar gifts, I ain't gonna know each small organization or young organization. Yeah. And the thing is too, like, I mean, I have full confidence if Black Men Teach got a Mackenzie Sky gift dropped on us overnight, I know for a fact we could steward it. And I know for a fact that we could take that money and have like we can exponentially increase our impact. There's no doubt in my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about stewarding it. I'm not worried about all of those processes. I think we have an infrastructure in place where we can handle those things. And if not, then we give us the ability to create it as well. It's just, I, I just have not seen it historically. And I'm okay with it. I think part of it is like, this is what you got to do. Yeah. Um, it's the reality of what we work in. The other curiosity I have is around how you might be working with higher ed institutions. Um, you know, I often hear, I mean, the way that our young people are now, do you think that the curriculum to get folks to be teachers is keeping up with where we are in our times or the future of where education is headed? That's a great question. You know, so it's two parts, how we're working with organizations and how are they keeping up with the curriculum where we're headed? I had a conversation yesterday with someone and they were talking about how in their course, they're they're um, using a text that's very specific to like cultural competency and how to bring that into the classroom, which I appreciated hearing. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm a few years removed, but I'm not that far removed from when I was in a teacher prep program. And when I was there, we didn't talk nothing about anything that was applicable to black kids. I was teaching at the time too. So again, my background is not traditional. By so the way, I went to a teachers of color program. I I didn't know you taught. I didn't teach. So just as an aside, I hate to break your your focus here, but I went to a teacher's color program when my kids were young. And I got to the student teaching part and felt like it wasn't for me. So when you said you flip it and put it on the front end, I actually might have even saw my face reflecting because I'm like, I wonder if my student taught on the front end, if I'd be a teacher right now. Like, I wonder if it would have shaped the way that I went through that program. Why didn't you student teach? I did student teach, but I didn't, it it didn't feel right for me. And it was an inflection point. So mm-hmm. I, I wish I remember the year. Um, if I did, it would probably be aging me for everyone listening. But I remember that right when I got to the end, the teacher um, licensing criteria changed. So it was like, if I didn't do it right then, I would have added time and coursework based on the licensure changes. And I just, I was sort of like at the end of what I felt like I could do. And it felt like I was probably at a point like that you were talking about, like when those barriers come up, you have the support. I think if someone probably would have snagged me and been like, you can make it over this hurdle. Cause I think it was just more like, okay, I I can't take no more. I'm gonna go do something else. I, I can't do no more. I don't got no more money for class, you know, or whatever it was. I just, I don't have no more energy. That, you know, that's such a common story. One of my best friends went to school to be a teacher and got all the way to the student teaching experience and stopped. He was like, I'm supposed to do what? I'm supposed to work 40 hours a week, not get paid and pay tuition? Oh, right. no. And I had three kids. Yeah, I had three kids. I'm like, I don't know how I can manage this. It, it's not practical at all for student teaching to be like that. Fortunately, at the state, they put out some funding 
um, so that a lot of a lot more student teachers have access to funding to help offset some of their living expenses. But it's still not enough. Not every student has that guaranteed. And it's such an outdated practice. Like what other industry do they expect people to enter for free anymore? In 2024, it's almost none. But that's still the universally accepted way for a teacher prep program to operate. I don't know if I said this, but one of the things that we also do provide all of our men with student teacher stipends up to $10,000 over the course of their time. Because most of our men are, are, I don't know most anymore. At one point, the majority of our men, almost two thirds were non-traditional students. And so by definition, they're at least 24 years old or they're working full time. I'm sorry, not or they're working full time. They're at least 24 years old or they've attempted college multiple times or they're like working full time, going to school part time. And so we realize like our men have to have that support. Otherwise it's not going to happen. So my uncle, I, I have to mention him in this, in this conversation was Dr. Uh, Richard R. Green. So he was the first black superintendent of the Minneapolis school system. It's my dad's brother. Yeah. I've heard that name. Yeah. And Green Central is named after him. Uh, Green schools named after him. And then he went on to New York schools in 1988, becoming the first black chancellor of the New York schools. And so he has a name, uh, he has a school named after him in each of the boroughs. And there's an academic leadership program named after him. And so he was definitely someone that I saw as an educator that um, was successful that appeared to have all of the signs of success like anyone else in any other sector. So it was a really good um, observation for me growing up. But what I was also in, you know, as I've moved further and further in leadership, I reflect often on the lessons that I was getting from him. And one of them was the number of Black educators that he supported Right. And as I run into people, they're like, I became an associate superintendent because of your uncle or I became a teacher because of your uncle. Um, And he used to gather folks together. And a lot of times there were educators at the senior level around my grandma's table and they would be debating and going through all their stuff. But at the end of the day, they would walk out and be supportive of each other. And so when I'm listening to you, it's, it's reminding me of just the importance, not just in the classroom. But what that does for a whole ecosystem around education and how it it changes it. And I've understood it more fully in the testimonies of those that encountered my uncle who was in a position very much like what you're in. Right. An ability to support people as they are are moving into the field, uh, a a connector between people that are working there, you know, a champion, a problem solver. You know, all of these things, it's so critically important. And so I just I wanted to say his name because he's been such an influence in my life, but also in recognition of what his presence did for so many other educators. Yeah, the uncle's a powerhouse without a doubt. Right. And I don't think that needs to be stated. He's got multiple schools named after him. Um, and so that's somebody I mean, that's the power of education. And that's one of the type of stories that we tell like our young people. We're talking about education as a journey, especially when we're talking to like high school guys. Teaching doesn't have to be a terminal career. There's the ability for people to become like your your uncle, more Dr. Greens, and in his lifetime, he probably impacted hundreds of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a overstatement at all. Mm-hmm. And I think 
people knowing that that's a possibility to, to leave a legacy as indelible as that, I mean, who wouldn't want to sign up for that journey? Yeah, so I'm with you on that. Yeah. The, one, the one thing I was going to say that I love the most about his story is that he spent time in juvenile lockup as a kid. Right. He wasn't he wasn't a kid without kid challenges and life challenges and some decisions that maybe weren't great for him in the moment. But I'm so grateful that someone saw him beyond that moment. And he went from from that to, you know, Augsburg and Harvard and all these other places, because often we will describe kids and in in where they are in a moment and then not see the value or the struggle or the possibility or the genius in them. You know, I think. Often, um, folks like your uncle become the best teachers, like people who didn't have the the like cookie cutter uh, education experience, because that's how they know how to connect to people. They know how to connect to those who are at a the precipice of going one way or the other. And so, a lot of the men in our program too, similar stories. I mean, the guys that tell you about one of my favorite stories is a guy named Vincent who came through our college program. He was expelled in fourth grade and from that maze in St. Paul. And when he went last year to student teach, he student taught in fourth grade in that maze and came back to the place, returned to right the scene of the crime. And he was fully committed to making sure that other students didn't have the same experience that he had. He 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 would tell you he was such, he would act out only because. Um, he just wanted the attention. Mm -hmm. He said the only way I knew how to get that was by causing behavioral problems. And so it's folks like that who went through school, who when they come back, they can identify that in other kids and they can help them build that affinity and that love for learning that's so necessary to be successful. Yeah. There's a teacher out on the on the West Coast named Sherrod. And Sherrod was one of the students in um, the schools that ended up being um, the Freedom Writers movie. Mm. He actually has a, a cameo appearance in it, but he um, got expelled. I think this is, is right from the high school. He got expelled, I think, from multiple high schools, but he ended up coming back and teaching at one of the schools that he got expelled from and becoming the teacher of the year. To your point, right? Like, I mean, just the, I think about the the people that have shared their leadership stories and you're like, dang, you went through all that and you were able to make it. Like, I mean, our kids need to be able to relate in that way and for teachers to be able to see the kids and see, see, look, I had the possibility in me and I wasn't that one thing that one day, you know, or whatever. And I think there's so much room for us to expand how we see our schools, how we see our teachers and how we see our students and our, in our community and across the states yeah can you say his name one more time I want to his name was Sherrod. his name is Sherrod, mm -hmm. and i can get you his information yeah please do we'll love to connect with him yeah we've brought him here a couple of times he's an amazing uh speaker he's he's, he's quite animated <laughs> i want to uh, make sure that the listeners have the website information again yeah, the website is easy. You Google Black Men Teach will probably pop up, but it's www.blackmenteach.org. Okay. And if they wanted to support you, they would just go on and be able to find a link that says support or donate or attend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. right, all of it, right? Um, when you open up the website, one of the first things you'll see is the donate button. Click that. 
give us the seven figure gift. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It is absolutely important. And, um, you know, to the opening point that you made, like we've all had experiences in school and we know the importance of having um, good classrooms. And hopefully we're at a place in our state and in our country where we recognize that a more diverse learning environment is the best learning environment. Thank you for being on Conversations with Shonda. To explore more insightful conversations and stay updated on Shonda Smith-Baker's work, visit our new website at smithbaker.co.